following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, well, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't we go to Philippians chapter 2, continue in our series this morning, uh, through the book of encouragement, the book of Philippians. We're at the halfway point, and uh, it's been a great journey so far. We're going to read this morning in verse 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, we're getting to Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, your favorite verse. Uh, there's much to talk about in this passage. If you have any experience with cooking, maybe you're familiar with this term of reduction. Uh, this is, some people are going, yeah, I know what that is. Uh, anytime you want to come over and show me how that's done, you can come over, bring some red wine, do a red wine reduction on, for dinner. Now, it's the process of thickening up a sauce uh, through boiling and simmering. And you may have done this unintentionally, where you've simmered a pot and then walked away, and 20 minutes later you smell something, come back, and just see a paste that used to be dinner. Um, well, when it's done properly, reduction will result in uh, something with intense flavor, uh, something that is, is a beautiful sauce packed with all kinds of, of yummy goodness. Well, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a gospel reduction. This is, uh, again, reduction is not a, uh, doesn't mean watered down, it doesn't mean a taking away or a diluted gospel, but actually the opposite. It results in this flavor-packed gospel. It is, everything is here. It's all here. Everything is here. It's the story of Christianity in a few verses. If you could have one page of scripture torn out on a deserted island somewhere, maybe this is it. This tells us so much in one paragraph. It tells us who Jesus is, what he has done. He is God and therefore all things are under his control. He has emptied himself and become like us. He dies on the cross and is exalted and it tells us if we truly follow Jesus that it will change our mind about everything. It's all here in this paragraph. And so that's what we need to cover this morning. So let's, let's begin and talk about this. First of all, the passage tells us that Jesus is God himself. Jesus is God and therefore all authority and power is his. The Bible tells us that Jesus was involved in creation in the act of creation, and Jesus is currently involved in sustaining all of creation. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Everything is happening and being held together and being sustained because of the power of Jesus. 
Jesus is the pre-existent one, the one who existed before history, before creation. This is what the earliest Christians had come to believe about Jesus because of his testimony, because of his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, that he was merely not God, he wasn't God-like, but he was essentially God. Paul is saying that Jesus Christ has the very unique qualities and substance of what makes God, God. This means that Jesus Christ was as much God the Father, or God as, the, as the God the Father was God. The very same substance as God the Father. He was involved in the creation of all things. Now think about this as it relates to this passage and his circumstances in his life. Think about what happened to him knowing that he is the pre-existent one, essentially God. This means that he was involved in, cre- in the creation of all things, and he was involved in the creation of the Roman guards and the Roman soldiers. He was involved in the sustaining of the muscles of the arms of the people that nailed him to the cross. He was involved in the creation of the saliva glands that brought mucus to spit on him. He is involved in the creation of the tongue that that mocks and ridicules and curses him. He is able to stop it at any moment. Jesus didn't have to die if he didn't want to. Now, this is seen so clearly throughout the New Testament and in a few areas very specifically that we see that why is he going forward with this and is he really capable of stopping what is about to happen? Consider this story where Jesus was arrested the night before he was crucified. Jesus is about to be arrested, and a Roman soldier comes to him, and Peter is standing with Jesus, and Peter pulls out his dagger, and he runs to the soldier about to arrest Jesus, and he cuts his ear off. And do you remember what happens next? Jesus picks up the ear and says, Peter, let's not do that. And he puts it back on the guy's head, and it's healed. And the soldier does what next? Arrests Jesus. He arrests him anyway. And then Jesus says these words. He he says right after he does this, he says, at any moment I can stop this. I can stop all of this. And he says, these are the words to Peter. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. Don't you know He turns to Peter and says, Don't you know that at any moment I can call out to my Father and He will send me more than 12 legions of angels to stop this all? Don't you know at any minute all of this can end? They're not arresting me. They're not killing me. I'm laying down my life. This means that the result of the crucifixion and all the events leading up to the death of Christ were in the knowledge and plan of God. Jesus had a right, the right, to claim all that he was by being God. But he didn't. He instead, as our passage tells us, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. He did not hold on to this right. 
He did not grasp onto it. He did not consider his very identity and nature a thing for his own advantage. Which brings us to the next point. He empties himself and he becomes like us. Being God, Jesus takes on human flesh without stopping being God. And so Jesus does not become human and give up the God. He actually stays divine, stays being essentially God, but takes on the human. And in this, in this wonderfully complex union, he is fully God and fully man in the body of Jesus Christ. All the fullness of God dwelling bodily. No other religion would ever dare make a claim about God like that. Theologian N.T. Wright says it this way, The real humiliation of the incarnation and the cross is that one who was himself God and who never during the whole process stopped being God could embrace such a vocation. What was the vocation? The vocation of being a servant in the form of his creation, in the form of being human. No other religion would, would say or want their God, their mighty, uh, wonderful God to condescend to be like us. And this is exactly what the God of the Bible has done. Jesus submits to an all-out self-denial. He turns his face to the cross. The God of the Bible, the only true God, is not afraid to get his hands dirty. The only one deserving to being fully served is lowering himself in order to serve. Jesus embraced our worst fears, that he would be forgotten, that he would be ignored and left alone. This is what he faced on the cross. Let alone, left alone, forsaken by his Father, by God the Father. What is the worst thing that could happen to you and I? That God would reject us. This is the worst thing that could happen to us. That God would reject us and turn his back on us. And this is exactly the nightmare that Jesus endured. Do you see what this is teaching us? Because Jesus, because God, eternally existing God, the Son, took on the human, he is able to take on our sin and the punishment for our sin. Because he took on the human, he knows about our troubles. He knows about our struggles. He is a good counselor. He knows about the struggle that we face and the and whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual, he knows what we endure by being human. If you've been following the, the story of Philippians as we've been working through this the last several weeks, this is why Paul was able to say, I'm not afraid, I'm not intimidated, I'm not afraid of anything, even death. I'm not afraid of the, the thought of, of physical suffering and torment and and torture. I'm not afraid of anything because God has become flesh and endured everything, my worst fears. And so for those in Christ who share in this good news, Paul says, what can separate us then from the love of God? The answer, because of the work of Christ for us, is a passionate nothing. What can separate us? And even goes through a whole laundry list. Can heights can depths, can principalities, can spirits, could, could forces beyond our understanding? What can separate us? Nothing. 
And then he dies on the cross. Jesus dies on the cross and he's exalted. You know, it's, it's a rare occurrence in the Bible where we see God exalting a strong and capable and brilliant person. We are told that Jesus is not physically attractive. So those paintings, if you have in your office, that's not right. He's not beautiful. He, he's nothing to look at. He's nothing wonderful as you look at him. We're told that he is poor. We're told that he is homeless. We're told that he is filled with sorrow and suffering. This is not an attractive person nor an attractive demeanor. He is broken. He's empty. In the Old Testament, a man named Samuel was sent by God to find a new king of Israel. Go and find this king to lead God's people among the sons of Jesse, a man named Jesse. And Samuel asked God, well, how will I know? How will I know that right guy? And God says, I'll tell you, you'll know. When, that, when you come upon that person, I will make it clear that this is the one. And so uh, Samuel goes on and he goes and he finds Jesse and he says, call all your sons to me so that I might look at them and examine them. Present them to me. And so one by one, they're lined up and Samuel goes to one and God says, no, not him, move on goes to another, and God says, no, not him. And he keeps going on down the line, and none of the sons are the ones. And so Samuel says, are you sure that this is all the sons you have? And, and Jesse says, well, there is one more, the youngest, but he's in the fields playing the harp and playing with the sheep. And he says, bring him to me. And he brings him to him, and God says, arise, anoint him. He is the one. And this is David. This is King David. First Samuel 16.7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, do not, look, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We see in Jesus and in this story, we see what the Father exalts, what he desires, what he honors when we look at Jesus. We see God's agenda in Jesus on the cross. When we see David, he's described as ruddy, with beautiful eyes and handsome. Translation, he's adorable. Okay? I mean, he's our worship leader, Josh. He's adorable, just like, this is an... Sorry, sorry, that's not, that's not fair. He's, he is not this kingly presence for God's people. And yet, God says, arise, He is the one. The powerful king of God's people is an adorable little boy who plays the harp with sheep. And when we see Jesus, we see God's agenda. We see what God delights in. We see what is honoring to him. And what Paul is enforcing here is that at the cross, we see God's true character, his lavish expression of love fully manifested in his humiliation, in his emptying. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is what we see in the cross. And we were so concerned, people at the time of Jesus were so worried. If you are God, if you are the one that is to lead us, then you will be in power, then you will defeat our enemies, then you will be great, and you will be powerful, and you will be a presence, you will be a force 
to be reckoned with. And then he dies and they're confused and they say, we got it wrong. We thought we are, all our hope was in this, but we got it wrong. But on the cross, we are seeing what God values. That the way to become great is to become a servant. That the way up is actually the way down. Paul brings one of his most beautifully articulated summaries of the gospel in Philippians 2 to its proper conclusion. He's reduced the gospel to all its flavor-filled intensity. Jesus is God who took on human flesh. He could have been very powerful. He could have led an army of angels to remove oppression and injustice, but he didn't. Not yet, anyways. He becomes a servant. Motivated by a desire to love rather than to be loved, he dies in the place of sinners. And the result of this humble obedience, he is exalted to the highest place, given the name above every name. This is the one of the greatest paradoxes of Christianity, one of the seemingly contradictory ideas of Christianity, that the way to become great is to become low, that the way to spiritual riches is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty, that the way to gain power is to become a servant, and that God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. In Christ, God shows us his true nature. It reveals what the character of God is, but it also it reveals to us the, the meaning of what it means for us to be made in the image of God. Jesus is the perfecter of our faith, but also the example of our faith. He secures our redemption through the cross, but he also shows us how to live in his life. We are meant to follow him, not merely appreciate his work that he has done for us. For many Christians, and I want you to consider yourself and real, give a real thoughtful consideration to this. If you are a Christian or you confess Christ because you appreciate what he has done for you, I want to encourage you here. We must not only look to Jesus because we appreciate what he's done for us. We must follow him. Liking Jesus, being glad that he has died, appreciating his work on the cross is not the true expression of genuine faith. But following him is. The true expression of genuine faith is to do as Christ has said, which is, follow me. Don't just like me. Don't just appreciate me. Don't just think that I'm a wonderful guy. Follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. Identify with me as I go to the cross. If we like him more than we follow him, we don't really understand the mind of Christ. We don't understand the mind of God. If Jesus is really God, then our whole entire lives must revolve around him. If Jesus is not God, then he is a madman and does not deserve us, does not warrant us to listen to him, to consider his teachings, to follow him. We shouldn't. You should be discouraged from following the teachings and life of a madman. But if he is, then his actions, his behaviors, his motivation, his teaching, his attitude, it is all right and therefore must be followed. And when we follow him, when we follow Jesus, 
our mind will change about everything. And I think that is one indication, one symptom of knowing that we are following Christ, being submissive to Him, desiring to glorify Him, because the way we look at life will change. Our mind will start to change about what we see and what we do. We will start doing things and have a motivation for things that are different from what we've always done. Our motivation now will be, be because we want to be like Jesus, to love Jesus, but it will be unnatural. Because our natural tendency is to become great, to pursue, pursue our right, to, pers- to grasp on to the things that give us advantage in life. And we see in Jesus that he went the other direction. So real briefly, like Jesus, let's follow him and look at what that means for us. Let's, first one is let's seek the cross. Let's seek the cross like Jesus. The cross is where we see our example for how to serve and love others. It is there we get the power to serve and sacrifice for others by looking to the cross. And it is also there at the cross where we get forgiveness when we fail to love and serve like Jesus. Do you see this two-sided reality to the gospel? The gospel is where we go that propels us forward and gives us motivation for a life of service, but the gospel is also where we go when we fail at doing that. The gospel reminds us of our forgiveness when we fail to live life imitating Jesus. Always seek the cross. Always, always seek the cross. The pursuit of the cross is ultimately a pursuit of Jesus, wanting to know him more, wanting to love him more and be with him more, wanting to understand who he is and the nature of God. That is why we pursue the cross. The goal is not humility. The goal is not service. The pinnacle of the Christian faith is not service. The pinnacle is Christ, to know him, to follow him. Second is let's serve like Jesus. Jesus humbled himself, motivated not, a desire, not by a desire to be loved, but to love. God has always had love and relationship bound up in him in the Trinity. We see this perfect community within God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created out of a spillover of that love and that relationship that he had within himself. The greatest temptation is to serve others in order to have our needs, our needs met, rather to meet someone else's need. Jesus serves not to be loved, but to love. Are you the kind of person that is continually feeling hurt when your acts of service and generosity are not reciprocated or not recognized? This is why I think, as I was thinking about this, this is why I I don't tip a barista when their back is turned. Because they can't see me doing it. And so I'll kind of hold it over the... And then when they turn over, they turn around and be like, oh, there you go. That's what I do. Extra whip, okay, yeah. This is... I want them to know that I'm doing good to them. I want them to know this is me doing good for you and I want you to know. I've even, it hasn't happened recently, but I've even gone so far as right when I drop it in, they turn their back and I pull it back out and wait for the, and then I put it back in. 
Pete, you're horrible. Gosh. Just keeping it real. This, the cross changes us. It changes our mind. It changes us. It changes the way we treat people. It changes the way we work. Think about this. It changes the way that we work in our jobs. That our, we see our job then as an opportunity to love God and to love others using our position, our skills, our intelligence as an opportunity not to, to make us uh, great and our reputation big and not to promote us, but using it as a way to bless and love others. Changes our motivation and how we progress in our work, how we pursue greater job opportunities. It changes the way we serve. Serve people in our church. Serve our church. Serve the body of Christ. It changes the way we even come to church and engage in community. Having the mind of Christ is the cure for all apathy and disappointment and disconnection in community. Imagine coming into community not with a mindset of, is anybody paying attention to me? Is anybody serving me? Is anybody recognizing what I have to offer? Instead, having an attitude of, how can I build? How can I serve? How can I sacrifice? How can I not grasp onto what's my advantage, but how can I humble myself for the benefit of others? Changes the way we spend money and the way we forgive. It changes the way we spend our time with people. What does it look like to have the mind of Christ? It means that even though we see an opportunity to pursue our advantage, we lay it down for the sake of others. What will Christians be known for in your generation? If you're a Christian, consider this. If a neighbor, a coworker, an observer of your life were to find out that you're a follower of Jesus, what would they, what would they know about Jesus? If, would the person say, you know, I haven't studied much about Jesus, but looking at your life, he must be very generous. He must be very selfless. He must be very humble. He must be a servant. He must not seek opportunities to make himself great, but he must often and continually look out for others. He must see that his opportunity and skill and all the blessings that he has are an opportunity to be a blessing to others. I bet they're not saying that. This is an indictment not just on you. This is an indictment on the American Christian culture. That this is not what people think. It may be in, in your own life, but, but as a majority and as a, a, a vast awareness of Christianity and Jesus, this is not what they believe about Jesus. And we need to ask ourselves, are we following Christ 
in his example, in his humility, in his motivation, and in his service. So that brings us to our final thing, and that is, let's repent of our misplaced worship. Whatever the Christian faith is, whatever the Christian life is about, it finds its central focus on Jesus. The, this, is, this means in the most practical way that since all things are created for Jesus and through Jesus and because of Jesus, that nothing can be fully known and enjoyed and understood apart from Jesus. And everything that is a pursued and grasped onto that is not Christ will eventually bring us shame. This is the point of, of verse 10 and 11. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is, this is a result of who Christ is, that he is in this place of worship above every other thing. That Christ bears the name of the Most High, the King of Kings. He has all the honor and glory and the fame of the sovereign God over all things visible and invisible. And one day, this truth will be known in all of creation. But for us who know this reality now, ought to identify our misplaced worship where we, where we misplace our value and identity and worth in other things, confessing of those things, repenting of them, asking for forgiveness, trusting in Jesus, and confess with our mouth that what is already true about God, that Jesus is Lord over all, that he is the perfecter of our faith, that he is the example of our faith. Because of Jesus' perfect obedience, all authority has been given to him. This means that we will never regret. We will never feel sorry for letting go of something in order to grasp on Christ. Never. I find a tremendous amount of comfort in that. No matter what, never will you feel ashamed or put to shame by choosing to follow Jesus. Never, in the moment you will feel, maybe, am I doing the right thing? I feel like I'm missing out on an opportunity in order to choose Christ. But you will never be sorry. Because one day all of creation will know what is ultimately true about Christ. That everything was created for him, by him, through him. And everything finds their meaning in him. Talking about this passage with one of our elders, Peter he said something, and I said, i got to quote this at church. <laughs> there is no rule to follow. There is a person to follow. This is it. This is not only Philippians 2, this is the whole Bible. There is a person to follow. God desires that we approach him through Jesus with humility and spiritual poverty, owning up to our lowly estate and committed to repentance and childlike trust in his perfect work for us. Let's pray. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.